Palm Sunday. The day is actually one of the most important days in the Christian calendar. It's the day that we look at the time when Jesus rode that baby donkey into Jerusalem, presented himself as Messiah to the nation. Uh, it's, it's also that day that we look at the Sunday before uh, we come and celebrate the resurrection, commonly referred to as Easter, but and I'm not going to be legalistic about it. I've stopped using that term a lot. Um, that's fine. I mean, I still do. But the world's view of Easter and the church's view of the resurrection are way different, vastly different. It's the day that the Messiah, the long-awaited Savior of Israel, the one who had been prophesied for generations, it's the day that Messiah would be presented to the nation, And as we'll see in the text this morning, things are initially pretty exciting. It's the Feast of Passover, one of the three required feasts for the Jews. We've looked at that in our studies in Acts, being Passover and then Pentecost and then Tabernacles at the end of the year in the fall. Uh, This is the great feast. It was the greatest of the feasts in Israel. And uh, I, I mentioned last week, the population of the city would swell enormously uh, I've looked at conservative estimates between 900,000 and a million people. However, I was reading uh, the writings of Josephus, who was a first century Jewish historian this week. He estimates the population of the city would swell to as much as 2 million. Needless to say, it's a huge crowd in the city on this day. Uh, we're going to look at the fact that there was a crowd that was following Jesus up from Jericho. There was a crowd that was already at Lazarus and Mary and Martha's house because Jesus had recently raised him from the dead. And there's a crowd that comes out from the city to meet them. This is a scene. This itinerant rabbi from Nazareth, a, a, a backwater place in their minds. Uh, as I shared in, in our Acts study, up in the blue collar region and, and, and the place where in Galilee where the people kind of talked funny. <laughs> and and that here's this guy that uh, has just turned the nation upside down, performing miracles, signs and wonders. We'll look at that when we return to Acts because we're going to be looking at the reason that those signs and wonders and miracles were done. But healing people, uh, teaching with an absolute authority that the people had never heard before. They also came to know him by his utter disdain for the religious establishment of his day. Uh, If there was anybody that Jesus poked in the chest on a regular basis, it was the religious guys. Mostly, though, he, he became known for his love for the common man, for sinners, just like you and me. So this day would also mark the beginning of the final week of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. Now, we know it as Passion Week. That's what we call it, Passion Week. That time from Palm Sunday through Resurrection Sunday. Uh, And and understanding why, I mean, there's a lot that goes on. This week, he would be squaring off with the religious leaders daily, is absolutely cementing their hatred towards him. (coughs) Excuse me, their need to get rid of him to get him out of the way, he was a huge threat. He threatened their power base because the people were going after him and not them. All of that's true. And and I I do want for us this morning to look at the significance of what we call Palm Sunday. But I also, before we do that, I want to go back and look at the beginning of Jesus's ministry because 
there's some things there that are very interesting that, that go on, which come to bear here with the events that we'll see unfold as we move through the text this morning. So with that, if you have a Bible or a device, <laughs> open it with me to the gospel according to Luke chapter four. That's where we're going to begin. Luke chapter four. So to bring you up to speed on what's going on here in Luke four, Jesus has been baptized in the Jordan River by John, the baptizer. And Luke tells us in Luke three twenty three that immediately after Jesus' baptism, at 30 years old, he began his public ministry. I think it's fascinating that Jesus began his ministry, yes, when the Holy Spirit came upon him. We've been looking at that again in Acts, but also that he began his public ministry before he was driven by the Spirit out into the wilderness. So from there, uh, as the Spirit was upon him, empowering him now to begin to fulfill that ministry, he's driven out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for 40 days. Uh, whenever I read that, I, I think about boot camp. Uh, a lot of you guys are military guys in here, and you know that to prepare you for what was ahead, you went through boot camp. And uh, I was thinking about Jesus being prepared for the ministry that he was going to soon engage in. He knew the strength, as Amelia was praying this morning, of the spiritual battle that was going on in the unseen realms the entire time of his ministry. So, baptized by John, tempted by Satan, Jesus now sets his sights on home. He, he's baptized in the southern part, or the middle to southern part of the, the Jordan River there in Israel. Uh, and, and home would be to uh, the northwest, a number of miles. Let's pick it up in verse 14 of Luke chapter 4. Verse 14, it says, Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit, catch that, to Galilee. And news of him went out through all the surrounding areas and surrounding region. Now, we've been talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit as we've looked at the book of Acts. And while we know that Jesus had the Spirit from birth, he knew no sin. And so he... He did have the, the spirit from birth, but we, we also know that he was baptized, not just in water, but baptized in the spirit there in the Jordan River when the spirit had descended upon him as a dove. News of him had spread. Many would be wondering, could this be the Christ, the Messiah? As the crowds gathered, Jesus began to heal the sick and performing signs and wonders as he traveled throughout the region of Galilee. Galilee would be the northern region, as I mentioned, of the nation. Verse 15, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. People were looking at him and going, wow, who is this guy? Where did he come from? What authority he speaks with? We can only imagine the authority with which he spoke. And it was, I, I, would, I would just <laughs> assure you, it would have sounded nothing like the religious leaders and their rhetoric that they spouted regularly. As he went, his visibility, his popularity continued to increase. Verse 16, so he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book. That's a scroll. That's literally, they didn't have books that were bound. They had scrolls that were <laughs> rolled and unrolled. He was handed the, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. Now, 
he reads from what we refer to as Isaiah 61. This is before they had chapter and verse markings. Those were added by man. It's very convenient to know addresses <laughs> so we can get around our Bibles. But he opens to the section of Isaiah where he starts to talk about and to unfold a prophecy that had been made 700 years before. He lists six facets of the ministry that he had now begun to engage in. Now, this is an unveiling here. This is him coming into his hometown and and he grabs this scroll and he begins to read. Verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Another term for Messiah is anointed one. Or sent one. He's, a, he's, he's anointed. He's the one who has been anointed to be the bearer of good news. That's what gospel means to the poor. He goes on. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to the captives. Recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. And to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Verse 20, and then he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. I can imagine that it was silent when he finished reading this. Now, when we read that Jesus handed the scroll back to Isaiah back to the attendant and sat down, in our culture, that means he's finished, right? Not so fast. In their culture, when a rabbi sat down, he was sitting, he was getting started, And he sat down to teach. That's why every eye was upon him. Verse 21, and he began to say to them, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now with these words, Jesus answers two questions that would have been in their minds. The first is, who is Isaiah writing about? Jesus is telling them, Isaiah wrote about me. The second would be, when will these things come to pass? They knew that this was an ancient scroll. And Jesus is clear. Isaiah wrote of today, this very day, when he says today, this is fulfilled in your presence, in your hearing. It's interesting because something that we need to be secure in, in our own personal theology is the person and the work. The person of Christ, who is he? Who was he? Who is he? Because he is risen. And what did he set out to accomplish? He lists it here. He tells them who he is. I'm the anointed one. And what he's about. This is what I'm going to do. And he's very clear with these people what that was. Now, uh, in verse 22, it says, So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? So I'm not going to go any further here in Luke chapter 4, but (laughs) rest assured, things go downhill pretty fast at this point, at the synagogue that day. Their amazement would be turned to disgust. They would wrestle. How could someone that's so familiar to us make this claim uh, to be the fulfillment of such amazing prophecies? So the crowd in the synagogue would take it upon themselves to drive him. They would come at him, drive him out of the city up onto a a ridge and and intending to throw him off the cliff. And in typical Jesus fashion, I just love this. This is like one of those, (laughs) my hero things. He just walks right through him to safety. 
<laughs> You're not going to take me. It's not my time. So at that point, Jesus relocates. <laughs> Good idea. He decides that Nazareth is kind of unfriendly. And he relocates his ministry, his base of operations, to a small town on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee called Capernaum. And that's where he would begin to call his disciples, a bunch of fishermen, and where he would begin to set up, uh, again, set up his operations, and, and he would begin to go out from there. Now, his purpose in all of that was that he could go out and that he could minister what he would refer to as the gospel of the kingdom to anyone who would give him an ear. Uh, we see time and again, he sets again the religious leaders he just sets them on edge because he flew right past all of their rigid rules and regulations. He flew right past their expectations that people uh, live by the jot and tittle of the law as he ushered in what it is to live in grace. Now, Luke chapter 9 and Matthew chapter 16 record a major shift in the ministry of Jesus uh, as these three years would begin to draw to a close. In Luke 9.51, we read, Now it came to pass that when the time had come for him to be received up, we know what that means, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. He says, look guys, we've been operating, we've been ministering together for all these months. It's time to head for Jerusalem. And he knew that this would be a one-way trip. Now that journey would come to an end in Luke 19, 27. We're going to pick it up in verse 28, but it would come to an end there. And in the, the, in that space between Luke chapter nine and Luke chapter 19, Luke reminds us seven times that Jesus was headed there, alerting us to the significance of the work that lie ahead. Also at uh, Caesarea Philippi, one of my favorite passages in all of the New Testament, Matthew 16 I just love to, I, just, I feel like I, I have walked through it. I've uh, been to Caesarea Philippi a couple of times and a couple of different trips to Israel. And it is just an incredible place. So there's Jesus with his men in the midst of no less than 14 pagan temples saying, who do you say that I am? Now, I want to teach that this morning, but I'm not gonna. <laughs> I want to go all the way to, to verse 21 of Matthew 16. After Peter proclaims him to be the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus rebukes him. And then Jesus pulls his guys aside and he says, look, I need to go to Jerusalem. It says in verse 21 of Matthew 16, from that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem uh, and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. So obviously time doesn't permit us this morning to examine the life and ministry of Jesus from the time that both Luke and Matthew state Jesus' intention uh, to travel to Jerusalem for the last time. So I want to fast forward at this point to Luke chapter 19. Uh, this is a famous passage. It's the passage that deals with the tri- what we call the triumphal entry. Really, the triumphal entry is when in the book of Revelation, Jesus comes riding in on a horse as king, as conqueror of earth. Uh, but we'll call it that. It's traditionally what we call this passage. We're going to pick it up in verse 28, Luke chapter 19. When he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. This is where now Jesus is, he's in the region of Jericho, which is down in the Jordan Rift, it's down in the bottomlands. Uh, and he's at the house of a man by the name of Zacchaeus. Now he's just finished uh, speaking the parable of the 10 minas. 
Uh, I'm not going to go into the, the parable. I'll tell you what it's about briefly because it does come to bear. It's about a nobleman who had traveled to a far country to receive a kingdom for himself and then to return. That's how Jesus lays it out. Now, in this parable, receiving a kingdom for himself is a reference to Jesus' first coming. It's also a reference to what he's about to do as he ascends into Jerusalem. Uh, when it talks about him uh, uh, and then to return, it's a reference to his second coming. So there's a split there in this parable. But he tells this parable for three reasons. The first is that he was near Jerusalem. It was 16 miles from Jericho to Jerusalem. And he was about to fulfill all that he had told his disciples all the way back to Luke chapter 4 that we just looked at. The second is that the people thought that the kingdom of God would be revealed immediately. They had no real working understanding or concept of what he was about to accomplish. They just knew that they had needs and they figured that he was there to fulfill them. They just didn't understand that their needs were greater than they could have imagined at that point. The third thing is that Jesus was illustrating in this parable the reality that there are rewards for those who by faith receive him and judgment is that which remains for those who do not. So to summarize, he'd illustrated why it was that he would now travel to Jerusalem for the last time to be presented as Messiah to the people, ultimately to be rejected by the people and then crucified. We're told in verse 28 that he went up to Jerusalem. And just a little geography lesson here. Jericho is about 800 feet below sea level. The Jordan Rift is the lowest place on earth. Uh, and it's down on the rift. Now, Jerusalem is about 2,500 feet above sea level. So that means over roughly 16 miles, they would travel about 3,300 feet up into Jerusalem. That's a hike. Verse 29, and it came to pass that when he... Uh, came near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village opposite you, where as you enter, you will find a colt tied and no, uh, on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. All right, now I want you to imagine with me for a moment, walking out onto your driveway, and somebody's getting into your car. And, walk, and, and I, I wouldn't advise that you walk up to your car at that point because that really probably shouldn't be happening. But walking up to your car, you, you kind of excitingly say, hey, buddy, what are you doing getting into my car? Now, what if he looked at you and in all sincerity said, the Lord has need of it? I, you know, I just look at this and I, I just think, I scratch my head. I think, wow, because you know, that's not too different from what's going on here. But I see one of two things happening here. Either the owner of the cult was one of Jesus' disciples, and this was set up ahead of time. Or, and this is my own opinion here, this was a supernatural event in preparation for Jesus' ride into Jerusalem. <laughs> I can't read this. I, I just, uh, this is an aside. I can't read this without thinking about the Star Wars Jedi mind trick. <laughs> you guys ever watch Star Wars? This is like they're... The, Obi-Wan Kenobi pulls up and, and the soldiers are saying, we're looking for the androids or for the droids and we're looking for these guys. And Obi-Wan goes, you're not looking for us. And they go, we're not looking for you. And he goes, you're not looking for these droids. And, oh, these aren't the droids we're looking for. He says, move along. And they say, move along. And it's just like, hey, weird. 
All right, that's a little Star Wars lesson. I, I, I don't know much about it. But I think about that when I read this. I think, you know, this guy just went, oh, great. The Lord needs it. Fabulous. Here, take it. I mean, this is property. This is like a car for them. <laughs> Verse 33. But as he loosed the colt, the owners of it said to them, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. I bet that they were doing this nervously. I mean, I would be looking around, you know. Uh, what are you doing untying my animal? And they tell him what Jesus told them to say, and this guy's good. It doesn't say anything more about it. Either way, we see a, a demonstration of Jesus' authority and power here in this. Verse 35, and then they brought him to Jesus and they threw their own clothes on the colt and they set Jesus on him. Now, I want you to understand the visual. This is a Again, this is, it's a very interesting visual. Jesus is a grown man. There's nothing that tells us that he was a little guy. Um, he's a grown man. This is a baby donkey. Now, for them to sit him on it, he would have to lift his feet up to not drag on the ground as this thing walked along. This would not be a kingly stature. This would not be something that you would look at him riding up majestic on the horse, you know, and all of that. No, that's the second coming. This time he comes as a servant. That time he'll come to make war with the kings of the earth. So the question is, why the cult? Why do this? The answer is found in a prophecy that was made about, well, 500 years before these events. Zechariah 9, 9. We read, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is fulfilling so much as he just simply goes through the motions here this day. This is the moment that he had repeatedly spoken of. This is his unveiling. In Matthew 16, uh, Jesus, he commanded his disciples that they shouldn't tell anybody that he was the Christ. When he, he asked, who do you say that I am? This is the Messiah presenting himself to Israel. Verse 36, and as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Now, the other three gospels tell us that people took tree branches. John specifically says palm tree branches. And they laid them out on the road ahead of him why we call it Palm Sunday. Now the people were crying out, Hosanna to the son of David, Hosanna in the highest. Yes, that was a form of praise. And yet there's something going on here, a subtle thing that's going on here. Hosanna means save now. Their hearts are beginning to be revealed. Verse 37, then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they'd seen. Now, Bethany, you got to understand, Bethany, as we've mentioned in our studies in Acts, is the same place where Jesus would ascend into heaven, uh, be caught up into the cloud and all. So it's just on the backside of the Mount of Olives. So remember, there's a crowd that has followed him up from Jericho. There's a crowd that was already at Lazarus and Mary and Martha's house, because that's where he goes, that, because he had raised Lazarus from the dead. And I'll tell you what, the place was lit up about that. And there's a crowd that hears that Messiah is coming, that Jesus is coming, and they come out of the city, and all of these crowds come together. This is an epic scene. I don't know how else to describe it. 
in verse 38, as these crowds converge uh, with him from these three different crowds, verse 38, they're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now there's an interesting nuance that Luke does here with the text that I want to point out. Psalm 118.26 says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. Luke changes the he to the king. And here's why. The people would use Psalm 118. We call it Psalm 118. I don't know what they called it. But they would use this psalm to welcome pilgrims to the, the national feasts, to welcome them to the holy city. But Jesus was more than a pilgrim. He's a king. And so Luke makes that distinction as he's talking here that they were worshiping their king. Verse 39, and some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd and said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Shut them up. John 12, 19 tells us in the midst of all this, that the Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you're accomplishing nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. The religious leaders, were they were defeated and they knew it. Their hatred against Jesus at this point, it was just, it had to be full blown. Verse 40, but he answered and he said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. In other words, no, I'm not going to rebuke my disciples. As a matter of fact, it would be the stones that remain silent on this day uh, because the multitude was giving Jesus their coming king, the praise which he was due. Verse 41, and as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. Now, understand the geography. The way that Jerusalem is laid out is you come over the brow of the Mount of Olives and you would be looking down the Mount of Olives. At the base of it is the Kidron Valley, the Kidron Ravine. It's a deep ravine to this day. Now, rising up on the other side of that ravine, you would see the Temple Mount spread out before you. Behind the temple, the, the land would slope upward again, and that's where Mount Zion is, the, the tallest hill uh, in, the, in, in, the, in the region. So when Jesus comes over the brow of the Mount of Olives, the temple would be in the foreground, the city in the background. It would be spread before him. I, I've made this walk, and, and it is breathtaking, literally breathtaking, to see it all spread out right there. And when a minute ago, it wasn't there. It says that Jesus began to weep. I want you to understand, his tears were not for himself. They weren't tears of sorrow that he was going to die, that by Friday, this is Sunday, by Friday, he would be on the cross. That's not what his tears are about. He's weeping for the city. He's weeping for Israel itself. Now, this isn't softly weeping. This isn't he came over the brow of the hill and some tears fell down his cheeks. Uh, a term that I've heard in the last few years that, that makes sense to me. This is what we would call in our, in our culture, we would call this an ugly cry. You know what an ugly cry is? I mean, this is visceral. This is from your gut. It literally, the, the word means to weep or to wail with an emphasis on the noise that's accompanying the weeping. Essentially, it's a loud, visceral outburst of emotion. Jesus is sobbing at this point. As he looks at the city, verse 42 saying, and I have to insert through tears. If you had known even you, especially this, your day, the things that make for your peace. But now they've been hidden from your eyes. 
Jesus' tears were those of a frustrated desire. He'd come to Jerusalem and in a broader sense to Israel with the desire to deliver it from destruction and with the offer of the things of peace. Instead, he found those whom he knew would shortly be rejecting him and rejecting his rightful kingly reign over them. The spiritual blindness of the rulers and the people was such that they did not discern the meaning of this, their day of visitation. And the result would be inevitable. There would be no escape from the judgment and destruction which would come. In verse 43, we read, For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. I have, um, uh, it's one of my study resources that I use. It's it's a a book by a guy by the name of Kenneth Wiest, a Greek scholar, died in, I think, 1961. But I I, I sometimes reference this because it gives an expanded, it's, it's sort of like the Amplified Bible, but it gives an expanded uh, understanding of what the Greek text says. I'm going to read verses 41 to 44 out of uh, the Weist New Testament. It says, And as he came near, having caught sight of the city, he burst into tears, weeping audibly over it, saying, If you had known this day, even you, the things tending toward your peace. But now they've been hidden from your eyes for there shall come days of such a character upon you when your enemies shall both throw up a rampart before you and encircle you and exert pressure on you from every side. And they shall raise, R-A-Z-E, that means to completely destroy, and they shall raise your city to the ground, both you and your children in you, and shall not leave stone upon stone in you. This is the part that gets me because you did not recognize the strategic epical season of God's gracious overseeing care and offer of help. As Jesus prophesies against Jerusalem, we know this prophecy to have been fulfilled in September of the year 70. After the Romans under uh, a guy commanded by a guy by the name of Titus Vespasian, he would go on to become emperor, but uh, as he uh, was directing the troops, they held a four-year siege against the city. Started in 66 culminated in 70. There would have been hundreds of crosses around the city. Those that they didn't kill, they hauled off to slavery. It was a slaughter. Josephus, again, he tells us that in Jerusalem and then surrounding Judea, the larger region around, uh, that as many as 1.1 million Jews perished uh, under this Roman onslaught. Another 100,000 were taken into captivity. Now, for those of you that enjoy doing a deep dive into what Jesus is saying with regard to their missing the time of their visitation, I'm going to spend a minute here in Daniel chapter 9. I'm not going to go into great detail, but I want you to understand that this was absolutely foreordained in the heart of God, in the plan of God, in the mind of God, that this day would be the day. So we're told in Daniel chapter 9, through the angel Gabriel talking to Daniel, that there are 77s determined for the rest of Israel's prophetic history. Now, we measure years in decades. 
That's a Roman unit of measure, by the way. But the Jews, however, measured years in units of seven. The term for that is heptad. All right. Now, in Daniel 9.25, Daniel has this to say. He says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and to build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now, the word week is heptad there. Now, it's not, it's not a week of seven days. This is a week of seven years. Again, this is in Jewish mindset, this makes sense. He's talking about 69 units of seven years. So, and I'm not going to go into great detail on the exact formula. There's some really good scholarly works on that. And I'll tell you what, it is absolutely fascinating to me because <laughs> I love digging on those things. But I will say this. In Nehemiah chapter 2, King Artaxerxes gave the command to Nehemiah on his 20th year of his reign, and that's a known date, on the first day of the month of Nisan, a known month in the Jewish calendar, also the Babylonian calendar, to go and restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Now, I, I taught one time on Nehemiah, and I, like I do sometimes, I totally crossed Nehemiah's name with Ezra's name, and I taught the entire study, this one, it was one midweek study I was doing, and I taught it about Ezra being the guy that went to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, and Nehemiah was the guy that went and restored the temple worship and all of that, and I had it completely backwards for 45 minutes. And my friend, uh, he's now the senior pastor at the same church where I was for a long time, my friend Brad came up to me, and he's got this big smile on his face as soon as I said amen at the closing prayer, and he goes, wow. He said, that was something. I said, what do you mean, Brad? He goes, I learned so much tonight. (laughs) I I thought, what? And he just said, you'll figure it out. Listen to the tape. That was when we had cassette tapes. Anyway, I want to be clear. This is Nehemiah. (laughs) Ezra restored the temple and, and, and he restored worship to Israel. But Nehemiah would be the one who would restore the city walls and restore and rebuild, as we see prophesied in Daniel chapter 9. Now, the date that Artaxerxes' decree uh, went out was, we we translate it to our calendar, and it's March 14th, 445 BC. Now, if you multiply 483 years, that's 69 heptads, periods of seven years, and you multiply that out to days, and I did it on my calculator just for fun, (laughs) you come up with 173,880 days. You guys probably already figured that out, right? Now, if you take 173,880 days from March 14th, 445 BC, and keeping in mind that the Jews used 360-day years, right? They didn't do 365. Again, that's the Gregorian calendar. They didn't use that. They used their calendar, 360-day years, and and adjusting for leap years and for the zero year when you switch from BC to AD and all that that I'm not going to go into, it would take you to exactly April 6th. 32 AD. That's this day. That is the day that Jesus rode in on that young donkey into Jerusalem. And they missed it. Now, the religious leaders controlled the narrative. That's a popular term, but they did. They held on to God's word and they were the ones that would dispense it because after all, they were the ones that could figure it out. And had they sincerely approached God's word and they sought to know when Messiah would come, 
They would have been expecting him. And they would have taught the people to expect him also. By the way, the 70th week of Daniel hasn't taken place yet. I've talked about in our Acts study, if you don't look at us here today, this morning as being in the midst of prophecy, you've got a wrong idea. You've got a a bad eschatology that we are in the midst of this. We are between the 69th and the 70th week. And when the church is taken out, that 70th week starts. We call it the tribulation. That's all true. At least for me, I think it's really cool. I, I love this stuff. But I think there's something else going on here as well. Jesus had told them at the beginning of his ministry about the fulfillment, him being the fulfillment of Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. We see here that the crowd's laying their clothes on the road. They're, they're putting down palm fronds. They're shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. These, the, the hoopla would have been tremendous. I can imagine it just being a deafening sound as these people were cheering their king coming in. John chapter 6 gives us a little bit of an idea about where the people's hearts were. In John 6.15, John tells us that after feeding the 5,000, the crowd had wanted to come and to take Jesus and put him up on their shoulders and cart him off to Jerusalem and install him as king then, Jesus' response was to send them all home. He said, go home. Uh, that's not what I'm here for. Then he sent his disciples away, said, go to the other side of the lake, go to Capernaum. You go home too. <laughs> I'll meet you there tomorrow. He goes up, I believe he was on Mount Arbel, which is just a glorious view of the lake. Looking out, watching these guys strain against the oars that night, ends up walking on the water. They think it's a ghost. I mean, I love the stories. But he meets them in Capernaum. He gets, actually gets into the boat, and instantly they're at the shore in Capernaum. And the crowd follows him around, the one that he sent home, the one that wanted him to be king. And that's there at the, at the synagogue in Capernaum. The next day, he says those awful, stumbling, horrible words to a Jewish mind. He says, you know what? You seek me because I fed you. I think if if he said, you seek me because you see that through my miracles, I have the ability to forgive your sins, that he'd have been excited, but he didn't, they didn't do that. He says, you seek me because I showed you a sign. Now, let me tell you what it's about. You have to eat my body and drink my blood if you want any part with me. And, And that would have been the most awful, stumbling. The Jews had nothing to do with dead bodies, or blood, utterly defiled. But he did it on purpose. He thinned the ranks on purpose. Why? Because they had it wrong. And he wanted them to see that. They wanted him to fulfill Isaiah 61 their way. Now let's compare this scene to those things that Jesus mentioned in Luke chapter 4. Specifically, they wanted him to proclaim good news to the poor. See, they had a low view. They wanted a financial Jesus, one who would bring material prosperity. Sound familiar? A lot of that out there. They wanted him to proclaim liberty to the captives. They wanted a political Jesus, one who would free them from the political oppression of Rome. That's why they said, Hosanna, save us now. They wanted him to proclaim recovery of sight to those who are blind. They wanted a medical Jesus. A Jesus who would heal at their whim, at their whim and, and according to their will. Does Jesus heal? Yes, he does. I've seen it. Fabulous. Does he always? You've got to leave room for the sovereignty of God. 
there, there are groups that go about now commanding things to be healed when indeed they drift into being false prophets pretty quickly because their, their assertion is that God will heal every time. And it's just not so. They wanted him to proclaim liberty to those who are oppressed. They wanted a social Jesus. One who would usher in social justice. There's a term. Who would cure the ills, the social ills of their day. They wanted the year of the Lord's favor and they wanted it now. Never mind that Jesus was not going into Jerusalem to sit on a throne. He would be going into Jerusalem to hang on a cross, to make an atoning sacrifice for their sin. How often people distort the gospel. How often it gets perverted to the point where it's there to satisfy me. It's there to serve me in a carnal human sense. The people in the first century were no different than what we see around us today, folks. Jesus would completely fulfill Isaiah 61, but not as the Jews wanted on that day when they missed the day of their visitation. He did come to proclaim the good news to the poor in spirit. Matthew chapter 5, in the Beatitudes, Jesus is blessed are the poor in spirit, the people who see their spiritual need. He did come to proclaim the gospel to the poor, to those who understand their spiritual poverty. He came to proclaim liberty to those who are held captive to sin and to death. How, how are you freed from that? He says, come to me. I'll give you a new nature. You don't have to live the way you've been living. You don't have to go according to the rules of this world because what they will do is deliver you to judgment. He came to proclaim recovery of sight to those who are spiritually blind. Does he heal? Yeah, but not always. Folks, you've got to elevate your understanding. He came not to just heal physical illness. And yes, I believe he does. And I pray for people's healing all the time. And that's a good prayer. So I'm not diminishing that at all. But he didn't come to just heal sickness. He came to give life. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul the Apostle says, And you were dead. Dead men, dead women walking in your trespasses and sins. Walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. But God, being rich in mercy, saved us. He came to proclaim liberty to those who are oppressed by the God of this world. You know what? You don't need me to tell you that life is difficult. Life is tough. Life is hard at times. There are times where our lives get pressed in. How tragic it is when someone refuses to bow the knee to Christ, choosing rather to live in that oppression. The futility of living your life outside of Christ. He came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor in the forgiveness of sins and the receiving of God's mercy and God's grace. Coming full circle, it's all about the person and the work. Who is Jesus and what has he done for me? As we look at the cross, as we consider in the week ahead, it's my sincere prayer, folks that we focus on all that means to each of us individually. Who is Jesus? Is he Messiah? Is he Lord of my life? Truly. And what is it? What, what is the work that he is about in my life? 
And I will submit to you, as I'm honest with you folks, he is far more interested in what he wants to do in your heart than how comfortable you are at this moment. That's the God that we love and serve, the God that loves us and sent his son to die for us. It's also my prayer that each of us take Jesus' words personally, apply them to our lives, to our understanding of who he really is. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. If you don't know Jesus this morning here or watching online, you can take care of that in a moment in time. You can step from darkness to light. You can step from death to life and simply surrendering your life to him as he is. Perhaps not as you want him to be or as you have thought he should be, but as he is. Messiah, sent one, holy one, anointed one. You simply lay your life down and take his life up. You just say, Lord, I Jesus, I trust that the work you did on that cross was for me and and, and that there's no way that I could live a life that would satisfy you on my own. I take your death, pray that you would wash me, fill me. I turn from the old life. Part of it, folks, is you turn. We turn from the old life. We change our mind about God. These people, many of them, as we're going to see when we get back into the book of Acts in a couple of weeks, many of them would do just that. We're at a section in Acts chapter 2 where Peter gets up to preach and it says that they were pierced to the heart because he spoke with an authority and a power that he did not previously have before the Holy Spirit fell that day on Pentecost and filled him. 3,000 people gave their lives to Christ that day. He's still in the business of saving people. He's still in the business of transforming people's lives. I don't know about you, but I've got a long ways to go, but I'm sure glad I belong to him. This is a tough, tough time to be alive. Perhaps you're struggling. Perhaps there are things that are, that are rising up in your life, in your heart, and you're wrestling. I can't encourage you enough. Take some time in the quietness of your heart. Surrender those things to him. Ask him to cleanse you if you're involved in an area of sin. Ask him to empower you if you're feeling helpless and hopeless. That's the work that he wanted to do in these people. It's the work that he still does today. He won't violate your will. He wouldn't violate theirs, but he will come in. He says, I stand at the door and knock. To him who opens, I will come in and I will, I will, I'll have a meal together with him. In that culture, that means... That meant I I will be intimate with him. I will, you open the door of your heart. I will come in. That's the God that we love. That's the God that we serve. That's the one who we celebrate when we commemorate this triumphal entry, this day in our calendar where we understand and remember why Jesus rode in to Jerusalem. Just why it was that he wept bitterly over the city. And why it would be after squaring off with the religious leaders every day, that Friday he would be on the cross. Let's pray. Father, amazing, amazing passages in your word. As they come to bear in our lives, Lord, we see that your word applies today to us.
Lord, I pray for each one here, each one online, Lord, within the sound of my voice, that you would do that work that you want to accomplish in us. Lord, I give you permission. I pray each of us would give you permission in the depths of our own hearts to come in, to work, to cleanse, to empower, to encourage, because it's you that we live for. We love you. We praise you this morning. We pray that you would now receive our worship. In Jesus' name, amen.